0: Let's try that. There we go. Good morning. Welcome to Church of Mall. Welcome home. I have uh, been battling uh, sickness all winter. As some of you uh, may also have been battling. Uh, it's amazing how you get blessed right around Christmas time. Uh, this year I got the flu. And so uh, thank God for Mariah and all our amazing volunteers here in this church that we're able to put together a service and, and continue on. And We are now on the mend. Our entire family has since gotten it. and We are all... Now through it and uh, healed and hopefully uh, on the up and up. But it is a blessing to be back with you. I am excited about this new year and where God is taking this church. We are now in our 10th year here at Church in the Mall, which is just so exciting. To think back 10 years ago of uh, eight brave families coming together and saying we're going to start a church with the sole intention of providing an opportunity for people that won't set foot in a traditional church setting To come and find a home here at church in the mall and yesterday for those of you that were here uh, we celebrated the life uh, of beth uh, who was a dear friend of ours who passed away and one of the things her daughter told me is that beth had spent her whole life searching for a church home and never found one until she came here and that what an incredible way to spend the last few years of her life and so my friends here at Church Small, Mall, we, we believe everyone deserves a church home, and we want you to find one, and hopefully it'll be with us, but if not, we would love to help you to find that right church home. In the meantime, we have a lot of work to do over this coming year uh, as God is going to continually move within this community, and as he has cast this new vision of how we're pouring into leaders and inviting more and more people into the ministry opportunities in this church, and I am very excited for it. But before we get into our, our series, which will be going over the next three weeks, let's pray and just invite God into this time. And then I cannot wait to unpack uh, this amazing opportunity to hear what God wants to teach us in these next three weeks. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we now come together, my prayer is that you will speak your word of truth deep into our hearts. That you would be more than just a, a God on pages, but that you would be the living God the one who speaks to us through all eternity, the one who called us into existence, calls us into relationship, and now calls us into a time such as this, a God who not only loves us, but invites us in the opportunities of making this world a better place. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would help us to become everything that we can possibly be, that we would be people of hope, people of a future, and people filled with the joy that you give us. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I have to tell you this cute story. On Christmas Eve, my wife and kids uh, came to service. Meanwhile, Mariah, our associate pastor, and the volunteers were running around trying to figure out how we're going to redesign the service without the pastor. And It dawned on me that we had put two Christmas presents in the garage, and I was fearful that if I were to pull them out later, it's right under my daughter's windows, and they would see these two bikes that we got them for Christmas. And so in uh, my glorious pajamas and bathrobe, I ran outside and I opened the garage and I'm trying to move these bikes into the house. At that exact same time, some people from this church drove by our house. A husband and wife and they were having a conversation about whether or not Christmas Eve service was to be here at 4.30 or if it was another time, was it even the right day? And the husband looks out his window and sees the pastor in his pajamas and his robe wheeling bikes through the yard. And says, see honey, I told you, we got the wrong day or the wrong time. And uh, they argued about it, and he sent me a funny text about it, and that's just the way life goes. And you know, it seems like we are filled with so many decisions in our lives. Decisions on where to be, and when to be, and how to be, and what to do next. And we're going to be looking specifically at this new series on how not to be your own worst enemy when you are making the decisions that come your way. Now, you may or may not be aware of this, but there are people out there that don't seem to have enough things to do with their time. And so they come up with questions like, how many decisions does an individual make in one day? And so right now they think that somewhere around 35,000 choices are being made each day by each person. And that's taken into account seven hours of sleep, if you get that much. And it's looking kind of at how many decisions we make every hour in every two seconds. So if you kind of think about the way our lives work, every two seconds we're making a decision on something. And so whether or not you entirely agree with this, the point is this, we make a lot of decisions. And some of those decisions seem very small, and some of those decisions have incredible impact and consequence in our lives. And so we're going to spend three weeks here looking at this very idea of how not to become our own worst enemy through the decisions we make. And what we're going to do is not tell you exactly how to make a decision or or tell you what decision to make, but we're going to give you some principles, some some guiding lines in which you might be able to help frame or or better yet enter into some of these challenges that we all face when it comes to making difficult decisions, especially as we come into the new year. And so uh, let's begin with this question, are you facing any big decisions in this new year? Are you looking at opportunities of perhaps moving or a new job? Are you thinking that this is the year we're going to have kids or this is the year we get rid of our kids? or <laughs> What is it? And so I want you to think about that and gather that thought in your head and just bring it to the forefront of your mind. I'm not going to ask you to share it. But we're all dealing with questions about our future. And, and some of these begin gnawing on us. And... and They can be really challenging, and sometimes they can even be fearful, and there's a reason for that. They're fearful because a single bad decision is always the first step towards becoming your own worst enemy, and nobody wants to make a bad decision, right? Nobody does. I don't know anybody that says, you know, today's the day I'm just going to wreck my life, Hmm. Uh, But what happens is we face these situations and we kind of go, well, what should I do here? What should I not do? And so we're going to look at this. The reality is every one of us has participated in every bad decision we've ever made in our own lives. I want you to think about that. We've all participated. So even though something bad may have happened or something outside of maybe our entire realm of, of self-conscious or choice or, or even our, our abilities and powers and authorities, the reality is we have all participated in these bad decisions. And so what would happen if we kind of looked at maybe three uh, preemptive habits over the next three weeks, so one a week, uh, of ways in which we can begin looking at some of these challenges that come our way and begin to help make better decisions for our lives so that you and I don't become our own worst enemies. And so I want to look at this first preemptive habit, okay? And uh, I want to start with this. Pay attention to the tension. You know when you're making a decision or or a decision comes your way that you've got to make and and it just feels heavy, weighty, Uh, It's not crystal clear what to do next. And and I don't know about you, but I don't like pain. Like when I buy Tylenol, I get the Costco 3000 caplet size because I hate pain. And so I like to quickly get out of any situation that can cause pain. But I'm going to ask you to think about this differently. When you're dealing with a weighty question, what would happen if you just allowed the tension to be the tension? Allow the emotion to be the emotion. Let the feeling be the feeling and and begin looking at it maybe from a little bit different perspective. But here's what I don't want you to do I don't want you to start selling yourselves. I want you to start listening. Here's what I mean by that. Do you know how many times I have walked by something in a store or perused something online and thought, I got to have that? Man, that is so awesome. I got to have that. And and I sit there and I go, I don't really need that. I've got four more just like it. But then all of a sudden, that voice in the back of my head, Kevin, the salesman, shows up. And he's like, have I got a deal for you? And, And so... Things like this pop into my head. You know, I I see you already have that, and it does everything this one does, but this one's newer, and it does it better. Can you imagine how much better your life will be if you have this? Don't tell me you don't do this. You're lying. You do this. Our houses are full of this stuff. How about this? Hey, you know what? If you get it home and decide you don't like it, yeah, just donate it. You can give it away to someone. Yeah, I've done that. One of my favorite things is thrift stores and garage sales, and I was thinking back where this horrible habit came from, and it's from my mother. She took us to all sorts of swap meets and thrift stores and garage sales, and it was always about find the deal. Now, find the deal does not mean you need it, right? It's about finding the deal. And and my wife reminds me of this as we have to climb through all the crap in our garage, and she reminds me of it when she can't pull her car into the garage, which I don't know why that's a problem. In the 15 years of marriage, she's never been able to pull her car in the garage. So why is it an issue now? But the point is, we sell ourselves on anything we want. In fact, human beings are the only creatures on earth that can sell themselves. We, we don't need any help. This is why the sales industry got away from trying to tell you stuff and got you in to start to experience stuff, right? I've never bought a car by somebody calling me up and saying, hey, I got a car for you. I bought a car because they opened the door and I got in it and I started envisioning how awesome I was going to look in that minivan. There was another car I wanted, but I lost that battle. But we we do, we we, we tell ourselves stuff, and sometimes it it gets really serious, like like this one. Sure, your spouse wouldn't be hurt and upset if they found out, but you know, you have needs that need to be met too. Now we're getting deeper, right? It doesn't have to just stop there. I love this one. Yes, siree, it's wrong, 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 but you know what, I just won't tell anyone. You know, I've actually had that conversation in my head. That's sad, isn't it? But it's true. So what I want us to focus on first as we begin our time today is is this idea of paying attention to this tension. The moment you start selling you, you should hit pause and stop. Now, I personally do not have the mental capability of doing this. And so here's what I've found. When I'm online pursuing all the crap in the world that I'd love to buy or have, I actually have to put the machine down and walk away. When I fill my little shopping cart, which they make so easy, I've found that it's best to close it and walk away for a day and then come back. Because I just don't have the mental, emotional capacity or capability of dealing with it. It's in the cart. One click away, I could have it in two days. So I, I want to focus on this idea of paying attention to the tension. And, and don't start selling, but rather we're going to start listening. And, and what we're listening for is, is that, that still small voice, right? Uh, we think of Jiminy Cricket or, or, or we think of our conscience. But really what it is is this amazing voice of living God wanting to interact with you in, in ways that sometimes we are so good at silencing and we miss out. And what this is, is God saying, look, I, I know that stuff's really cool and I, I know that sounds like a good idea, but, but you feel the tension yourself, don't you? You feel the weight of it. Something's just not quite right. Have you ever had buyer's remorse? Have you ever made a decision and went, oh boy, that cost me way more than I thought it would. That sucks. Well, I love what Proverbs has two great verses I want to share with you before we get into our story, uh, which has to do with a, a marvelous man named David. But here's one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 18:13, 13, to uh, answer before listening, that's only folly and shame. You know, we, we have an uh, 11-year-old little boy at home, and he is uh, amazing at wanting to please because he wants so badly to be accepted and loved. And so sometimes he'll just make up stuff. He'll be like, Dad, you know there's a dinosaur with three heads. I'm like, you're lying. No, man, it's got three heads. It came from Mars. And all of a sudden the story just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and we all have the ability to do this. But what often happens is we're so quick to respond. We're so quick to get some sort of, of emotional jolt or, or to get rid of the pain that we're not listening to what's really going on inside of us. And sometimes the stories we, we say out loud when we begin to listen to them, we really do think that a three-headed dinosaur from Mars is a little bit far-stretched. That the needing of a new car or something new that you have four or five others of may not be exactly what you need. That, that maybe that fling that, that will help you feel better about yourself may not be the thing that will bring you the life of abundance you longed for. And and so then there's this other great verse that I love in Proverbs. that goes like this. The first to plead his case seems right until another cross-examines him. And if you're a lawyer, you might really appreciate this, but it's the idea of the first person who speaks right because there's nobody questioning them. And then all of a sudden they get cross-examined and they're like, "Whoa, wait a minute, there's some holes in the story here. There's some pieces missing. Now, now, this is how it plays out in my life. I start seeing something I want. And I begin telling myself how I need it. Because if you need it, you've got to have it. And then what happens is I, I begin letting a few people in on, on what it is I'm telling myself and what I want. And, and so what happens is I go, man, you know, I really want, I really want a 1964 Ford Cobra replica. I really want one. And I begin telling people that, and they go, well, Kevin, I've seen you drive. You're an idiot. You'll probably kill yourself in that car. And so you know what I do? I go, well, I'm not listening to you. And then I go to the next person. You know, I really want this 1964 Cobra. And I think I can convince my wife to trade in the minivan. and get it and then that friend says you're an idiot your wife is way too smart for that and that's not a good resource and Kevin it's a two-seater car how are you gonna get a family of five in there and I thought well I can get a trailer (laughs) right and we sell ourselves but what happens and maybe you do this too but when I hear something I don't want to hear especially from a friend or loved one I I have a great way of kinda turning it off And there's sometimes there are people I've even excommunicated from my life because they didn't agree with me. So I become that fool and going to court, arguing my case, and nobody's challenging me. And so guess what? I keep telling myself I'm right. And eventually I'm going to believe it. And I'm willing to bet some of you do that too. Some of you have friends you no longer talk to because they challenged one of your decisions or your thoughts towards making a decision? And the question is, if we can't trust those who love us, can we really trust ourselves? Because I can sell myself anything. So we're going to pay attention to the tension. We rarely, if ever, have to sell ourselves on a good idea. We just don't. They, they often fall into place. And so now I want to get into our story about King David. And he's Israel's second king. You can read about him in 1 Samuel 24. And if you have your Bible, you're welcome to flip there. We're going to be in verse 24, beginning in verse 2. But let me give you a little history and background of, of what's happening here. Because this is such an interesting story. Remember, from the very beginning, God's intention has always been to create humanity so that we might experience what he experiences. Perfect love between himself as a father, son, Holy Spirit, God. Three in one. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He didn't create us because he was bored. He didn't create us because he needed a toy. He created us because he said, what I have is so great, I want to share it. And as he creates humanity, he says, I I want to bring humanity into my house but the problem is humanity wrestles with wanting to be our own God versus trusting God you see I don't know about you but I've noticed this in my own life when I get something and it comes with a manual I take the manual out I put it on the counter and I try to figure it out and then I eventually get frustrated or I break something then I go to the manual and that's exactly what humanity does so often is we, we try to do everything we can. We don't need God. We, we, we can be our own gods until things break or they don't work out. And then we turn back to God because we know deep down intrinsically that there's something God knows that's better than what we know. That what God wants to offer us as a plan for our lives is better than the one we can create on our own. And so we begin an opportunity or a journey of trusting him. And so in the story of God's people, God wants to unite his people. So he calls a man named Abraham out of this tribe. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation if you simply just trust that I can do that. And as he does, his children become this offspring. And they fulfill a promise God made that he would make... His family more numerous than the stars in the sky and and more numerous than the sands on the the seashore. In other words, God's family will be so huge and diverse. And then we read throughout the entire Old Testament as God's uh, people become more and more and more and then how they get to a point where they turn away from God and they turn back to themselves and they get smaller, smaller, smaller. Then everything breaks. They go back to the manual. They go back to trusting God and they grow again and we see this story over and over. The book of Judges ends in a scene where Israel is now broken into all these tribes. It's not one nation yet. And then God says, I'm going to make you into this great nation, Israel. And the next scene is 1 Samuel. And that story begins where God's people call for God to deliver them a king. And so we see King Saul step to the throne. Now, Saul is a great king as far as humans are concerned. He's very much about himself. He likes the power and authority. He, He loves the idea of God, but man, he just lacks the ability to trust at times. And so one day he's facing a great army, the Philistines, and they decide that it's not really worth attacking. We lose a lot of people that way, and the Philistines feel the same way. So they're both parked on top of these hills overlooking a valley. And every day the Philistines would send out their great champion, Goliath, a huge mountain of a man. And he would challenge the Israelites, send me your best man. If he beats me, you win. If I beat him, then we win and we take you over. And every day he would taunt the people and Saul would just hide in his tent. And one day, little David, a shepherd's boy, came there delivering goods to his older brothers who were on the front lines of this war. And he hears Goliath taunting God's people and David decides... I am not going to stand for that. You can't make fun of God. And so David says, you know what? I'm going to go in the power of God. And he ends up attacking Goliath head on in the battlefield. Goliath comes with his sword and shield and spear. David, with simple rocks and a slingshot. Because that's what a shepherd knows. And he says, you come at me with sticks, but I come at you with the name of the Lord, my God and my Savior. And David delivers a blow that kills Goliath. That now puts David on an incredible chain reaction of glory and fame. And he rises to power and all of Israel honors him. Saul takes him into his household and marries him off to his daughter. And so now Saul the king is David's father-in-law. But as David grows in in power and authority, Saul doesn't like this. And so he decides to send David into all these crazy battles in hopes that the battles will kill him. And then he doesn't have to deal with David anymore. Well, David becomes more and more qualified to battle. He trusts God more and more and God provides more and more. And David always comes out the victor in such a way that all the people now celebrate David more than they celebrate Saul. So Saul tries to kill David. David runs away, not knowing what to do with this situation. He flees to the countryside, and there he meets up with all these amazing men who are outlaws. You might be familiar with the story of Robin Hood. This is very similar, in the sense that David is now an outcast from the kingdom, and gathered around him are all these merry men of outlaws who want nothing more than to be with David the giant slayer. Well, they're outlaws, which means they're on the run, and that begins our story. Now, David has found a place out here called Gin Gedi, and it looks something like this it's in the wilderness. There's caves and mountains, and, and a spring in which they can find water. And, and if you turn all the way around and you face 180 degrees away, you'll see this beautiful scene of the ocean, and it's just an incredible place. But it's the desert, the wilderness. David is not allowed to come back into the town for fear that he will get killed. And Saul is getting tired of thinking about David being off there in the distance. And so he decides he's going to put an end to this. And so our story begins like this. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of wild goats or the wilderness I just showed you. Now, the very fact that he takes 3,000 men shows me that he's a little overzealous. That's that's quite a few. And also maybe his fear. He wants to make sure that David is dead. Saul comes to the sheep pens along the way, and there was a cave there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, in the Greek, that's he pooped. And Being the king and you have 3,000 men and you probably have armor bearers and you have cooks and chefs and all sorts of people and you've got a caravan a mile long and you've got to relieve yourself. You're not just going to stand there looking at everyone. That would be weird. So he gets off at this nearby cave and he decides to go inside for some privacy. Seems like a good idea to me. But back in the deep part of the cave hiding there is David and his merry men. Now, here's the situation. David is wanted by the king. This is his father-in-law. He's also the anointed king placed on the throne by God himself for the united nation of Israel to become a nation. And David knows that this man wants to take his life. Now, this is where the phrase caught with your pants down came from. If David wanted to take out Saul, this is his prime opportunity. But David feels the weight of this decision. He doesn't run up with his knife and attack. He stops to think about it. Now, he knows full well that God has delivered all his enemies into his hands up to this point. Goliath, Philistines, hundreds of thousands of men have lost their lives in battle to David and his army. God has delivered him every time. Why would this be any different? So then David is probably standing there with his men and they begin talking real quietly. And they're probably doing this. Hey, David, David. You know, the men said, this is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give you the enemies in your hands and, and you'll deal with them however you wish. God is giving you free reign to do whatever you want here. Get them. Let's put an end to this so we don't have to be outlaws anymore. You can be the king. But David is so conscious stricken, he, he just can't quite step into that decision. And so David does an amazing thing. He, he pauses and he begins listening to that still small voice. And he does something really remarkable. He, he doesn't just simply listen to his friends and himself. He, he actually goes to a higher power as if to say, God, what, what do you want to do here? It's as if David recognizes that every decision he makes has the power to bring God glory or to rob him of it. And so David is stuck with this heavy decision. What, what do I do? And, and so he thinks to himself, you know, I, I'm about to murder the king. The one placed there by God, my, my, my father-in-law. And I love this phrase. In David's mind, it's, I, I can't replace what God has put in place. Now, some of you are facing some pretty major decisions that don't just impact you. They impact family members, friends, co-workers, neighbors. Rarely do our decisions ever simply just in, deal with us. And here's David thinking uh, much bigger of, one, how will this glorify God if I take this man's life? H- how will this impact Israel and God's people? How will this impact the, the men around me and myself? And he begins really thinking about what to do next. I can't replace what God has put in place. And so then David gets this great idea. He says, you know, I got a plan and he begins sneaking up. He crept up on Saul. Now, if you can imagine a king is probably dressed in robes and and things that make him stand out from the crowd. But those are not helpful when you're in the bathroom. And so I'm sure he disrobes some of those things and set them on the nearby rock as he's doing his business. And David sneaks up and he cuts off a small part of Saul's robe. Now this is no injury to Saul. He just cuts it and takes off. He then goes back to his man and he, he says to his men, the, "The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed." In other words, I don't feel like God is telling me to go kill this guy just to make my life easier and to make your life easier. With these words, David sharply rebukes his men, and and he did not allow them to attack Saul, and Saul left the cave and went on his way. So I'm sure that when David came back with the robe, they're like, you idiot. You got to aim for the neck. Here, we got this. We'll kill him for you. David's going, that's not how this is going to work. You see, the decision is mine, and I carry the burden of it. I also carry the consequence. So D- David does this amazing thing. He, he hits pause. He, he stops selling himself on all the great ideas like he could be king. He could be grand. I mean, do you know what it would be like if David stepped out of that cave, flanked by all his men, holding the head of Saul? Saul's army would simply collapse because they all know David to be this great warrior and a man of outstanding character. They would worship and honor him as their king. There would be no battle, no civil war. All of David's merry men would be welcomed back into society and probably even into the ranks of the military where they would now have prestige. But but David says, you know, there's something more than just my own desires here. So he hits pause, he stops selling himself, and he starts listening to that still small voice of what to do next. And then he does something remarkable. You see, David has faced many giants, but never one this big. He steps out of the cave after Saul has left, and he says, May the Lord judge between you and me, Saul. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. In other words, you brought 3,000 soldiers to come and kill me. I'm right here. I had the opportunity to kill you, but I didn't. So we're going to let God judge. I mean, mean, the weight of, of the situation has changed to now moving off David's shoulders onto Saul's in his armies and now these men have to pause and listen and decide what to do next David decided not to use Saul's bad behavior as an excuse for his bad behavior he decided to rise above and what happens as a consequence is David's character changes people's lives Saul is now humiliated by David's humility. I could have killed you. You know I have the ability and the skill level. I chose not to. Remember, we we rarely have to sell ourselves on a good idea. Instead, we, we pay attention to the tension and we don't start selling, we start listening. It's okay to let it bother you. It's okay to sit on the tension and listen until you have a direction that seems right. With every habit begins a first time. With every pattern begins the first line. And every journey begins with a first step. A single bad decision is always the first step towards becoming your own worst enemy. I want to tell you, when I was uh, younger and in college, I was studying uh, the Bible at uh, Biola University in Los Angeles, and I was a Christian ed major with a, a minor in theology and Bible. And my parents picked me up and we drove up to San Francisco up the coast of California to go visit my sister who was going to school up there. And it was such a fun week to just spend going through San Francisco. And I'll never forget this one moment, though, of that whole trip where you would buy a bus token and you could use it on the trolleys and the buses, but it expired after so many hours. And my mom and sister and I were running to catch this bus, and my dad is trailing behind us because of his bad knee. And we get on the bus, and my sister came up with this really cool thing called the San Francisco Shuffle. It's where you take the card and you fold it in your hand so just a corner sticks out. And you walk by the bus driver really fast. So he can't see it. At least he can't see the time stamp. And what happens is there's usually so many people getting on the bus, they just let you go. And so even though our tickets had expired, my sister, my mother, and I, doing the San Francisco shuffle, got on this bus for free. My dad, he gets on the bus and he looks at the, the clock and it says, if your ticket expires before this time, you owe two dollars. And he looked at his ticket, and he looked at the clock, and we're sitting there. And my sister's like, "Dad, come on, come on, come on!" And I watched him reach into his pocket and pull out two dollars and hand it to the bus driver. And I thought, well, that, that's kind of cool, I guess, Dad. You know. And then I thought, man, I, I feel like an idiot. I I just sold myself for two dollars. And so. All of a sudden, these decisions we make are the difference between stealing a bus fare and killing a king. That one decision is what leads us to becoming the person we end up not liking. The person we hate. So it would be easy to walk away and say, oh, well, you know, the buses make so much money. and It, you know, it was only a few minutes, and I, I began selling myself on what I think is right but the funny thing is when my dad sat down he he didn't have any weight on his shoulders and we all felt really heavy he he didn't have any guilt because he did what was right if that bus driver decided to walk back and check tickets he would not be embarrassed but we would have so the question is what decisions are you facing in this new year Are you able to pump the brakes and pause? Are you able to listen? Sometimes it's just a second, like stopping to look at the clock on the bus. And sometimes it's sitting with friends and really thinking through the consequences and talking about it, like David did in the back of the cave. And sometimes it's just stepping out and doing what's right, the next right thing. Because our decisions do matter. Each of us has the power to bring glory to God or glory to ourselves. Is there attention? Woo! Is there attention that deserves my attention? Think about that. Is there attention that deserves my attention? I want you to pay attention to that tension. Don't start selling, just listen. What does God have to say to you in that moment? Now, each week, we're going to give you something to take home. And and the only way I can think of it is is a commitment, something that we can all commit together to say, you know, that's something I I want to take into my life. And so let me present to you the first of three over the next three weeks, uh, the commitments I'd like us to think about. Here it is. I will pause until I pinpoint the cause. When you feel that tension, I want you to think of this phrase. You can write it down if you'd like. It's, I will pause until I pinpoint the cause. What is really causing this? Is it just emotional? Do do I just want it? Am I just not feeling good about myself in the moment? You know, this is the idea of putting stuff in the basket on Amazon and then waiting 24 hours. And then rethinking, do I really need this stuff? This is that moment when you're you're facing that temptation of, of leaving your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, just simply because your needs don't feel like they're being met in that moment. And here's someone that might be able to do it. You know, pause until you pinpoint the cause. What is going on inside of you? And here's the second part of it. I will explore rather than ignore my conscience. That's the listening part. I'm going to explore it instead of ignoring it. Don't be a salesman. Pause and listen. This is how we can learn how not to be our own worst enemy. Now, The next two weeks have incredible things just like this. Simple, understandable stuff that we can put into our everyday lives. I hope you will find this meaningful. Especially as we begin looking at some of the characters in the Bible who are challenged with many difficult decisions just like you and I. I hope you don't miss out. Because I can't wait to show you what happens in the next two weeks. With that, if you have kids next door, would you mind going and getting them as we prepare for communion? You know, in this church, we celebrate communion after service as a way in which we can interact with the living God, a way in which we can respond to the message we've heard and a way in which we can encourage one another and ourselves to stepping out into faith. And so in the Christian church, this came about after Christ's death. As the disciples got together and they said, remember what he said in the upper room right before he left us when he took this amazing Passover meal that celebrates God's deliverance of his people and he brought it into its fruition and fulfillment. That it wasn't simply about God wanting to lead the nation out of Egypt, but about God wanting to lead all of us back into his family and home. And so this is an opportunity for you to be a part of that with us. As Jesus took the cup and he's celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, he pours the cup and he's reminded about how grapes have to be crushed in order for juice to be produced. And he turns that into a metaphor saying, so my body will be crushed for you. Because God's love is so great, he'll never ask you to do something that he's not willing to do first. I understand it's a sacrifice to give up your own life to trust God. But that's why God gave up his life, to show us that not only can it be done, but the life we receive is so much richer and so much fuller. Jesus takes that cup and then says, Every time you drink of this cup, I want you to do so in remembrance of me and God's great love for you. He then takes the loaf of bread and again reminds the disciples that as wheat is crushed and flour is made, so my body will be broken and crushed. And out of it will be produced a loaf far greater than any bread you've ever had. It'll be the living life, the bread of life. So that every time you eat of this, you'll be reminded of my great love for you. That the work we have together is just beginning. The things I want to show you are endless. My grace covers all. So my friends, as we come to this table, this table is open for anyone and everyone. What you risk is experiencing the risen Christ in your life. Gabriel, will you come assist me, buddy?